0: hi how are you uh doing welcome to the brook if this is your first time we're glad that you could join us uh wherever you may be my name is muchu i'm one of the pastors here uh it's a lot going on clearly but there's a lot of conversation that needs to be had theologically about uh the church gathering uh across uh the web and all of that But now is not the time for that conversation. In fact, now is the time for celebration, knowing that Acts 17 means that God has determined this moment in history where we would need to be able to move beyond geographical connection and still gather because of what's going on in our world. And so... In the fall of 2019, we prayed as a church, knowing that everything was happening in China. But we had no clue that it would, it would spill over to this pandemic that has reached um, the, the corners of the globe. And even just this week, specifically here in South Florida. And it's been, it's been interesting, but it's been a moment, honestly, where it feels like the world is being confronted with its mortality. In fact, it reminds me of this quote um, from Niebuhr. He's a monster. It reads like this, Man is mortal. That is his fate. Man pretends not to be mortal. That is his sin. Man is a creature of time and space whose perspectives and insights are invariably conditioned by his immediate circumstances. But man is not merely the prisoner of time and space, he touches the fringes of the eternal. And the more one understands about the eternal, the more one understands how eternal the eternal is and how finite the finite is. There is a collision with real life and our mortality that has created this sense of pause everywhere. And when when life forces a moment of reflection, Wisdom says that we take it, all right? When, when life forces us to a moment where we have to reflect, wisdom says that we take it, that we actually step back and reflect a little bit. As I've been reflecting about our moments and even just our city, Miami, Man, it's, it, there's a lot happening in my heart, so been in Miami for a while, love my city. Man, it is great. Uh, I had a conversation with Will um, earlier where we were just talking about, like, Miami really just needs it to be its own country. At minimum, its own state, because it's so different from the rest of Florida. Like. I mean, obviously, we have so many languages spoken here, the top three being Spanish, English, Creole, but then also you have Portuguese, you have Patois. There's just so much happening here, but there's also this language called uh, the language of the horn honk, like, where like, depending on uh, the, the beep, you could really tell the cultural ethnicity behind it. And you could, like, if there were subtitles attached attached to, like, horns being honked, it would it, it, go like this. So if there's this, like, long, extended, eh, like, that means there's a string of four-letter words, <laughs> like, that somebody is communicating with every single, like, eh, but then also, again, like, if it's like a, eh, 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 like, like that's a highly melanated corn honk. That is somebody from Opelika, Miami Gardens, or the like. And then you even have... I'm, <laughs> I'm so serious. I love our city. It's, it's full of life. It's full of culture. It's, it's weird. Miami has this almost quasi-untouchable nature to it. So, man, in the last five years, we've had several hurricanes. And category four, category five, here's what happens. People are like, yo, we're about to have a hurricane party. So you grab the sangria, I'll bring the sancocho, right? You bring the cremas, we'll bring the griot. It's like hurricane party. So people are like, yo, it doesn't matter if it's category five. We're just going to hunker down and have fun. yet in this last week, the tension has been thick. It's not that same energy, not that same vibrancy, not that same bounce. It's been this weird cloud of anxiety because we have been confronted with our mortality and the shared human experience of being anxious. And in fact, the, the human experience of anxiety is tied to something we try and hide which is to experience a moment of vulnerability to be human is to be perpetually vulnerable like we are born and we need somebody to help us grow somebody to feed us somebody to clothe us somebody to clean us and then even as we continue to grow and we enter into school we need somebody to teach us and then it, we're afraid of vulnerability, so even when we get to like the professional world, what we try and do is like the pinnacle of humanity is to be self-reliant, so that you don't need anyone. So that by the own hands, your own hands, your own strength, you could mask what is core to you, which is vulnerability. Yet, as I've just sat and and life has provided a moment of reflection, what I've thought is this: vulnerability brings us to a face-to-face encounter with ourselves. We can't hide when we're vulnerable. Not really. But not only does it bring us to a face-to-face encounter with ourselves, but as Niebuhr way more eloquently said, it may bring us to a face-to-face encounter with God that in the midst of tremendous anxiety, what the heart longs for and looks towards is this sense of calm, like some type of stability, some type of peace. And what God offers is the possibility of peace, profound peace in the midst of almost consuming, chaotic anxiety. So if you have a Bible, you'll meet me in Isaiah 26, where we're going to spend the rest of our time, and, and the hope is that we would, we would see the weight attached to the first six verses. In fact, really, it's just a song. Like the first six verses are a song, and, and hopefully we would see the, the weight attached to this song, but then also the nature and even pursuit of peace And then we'll close with some considerations and practices that we should apply if we're courageous. Let me read it all the way through, then we'll take it bit by bit. The weight of this song, the nature and pursuit of peace, and some practices worth considering and applying if we're courageous. Uh, Read with me, even if you're at home. It's cool to read in your kitchen God's cool with that. Uh, 26 verse 1, it reads like this. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. If you make notes in your Bible, you could go ahead and underline verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Here's a song. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you trust in the lord forever for the lord god is an everlasting rock or some translations say the rock of ages for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. There is a lot here. I love it. It is It is situated in one of the most robust and profound books in the Old Testament, Isaiah, littered with prophecies and and truth pointing to a future day. So in that day, in fact, from Isaiah 24, really going on to Isaiah 30, you get that repetitive phrase, in that day. The scriptures aren't bashful about that, that there is a day coming where God mends what is broken and makes right what is wrong. It is a day of renewal. So this song is actually futuristic. It says that there is going to come a day where the people of God, a people from all people, are singing this. That their hearts are fixed, their lips are fixed to seeing what we just read. That in this day, where it is a terror for some, for those who have treated God as as one of those neighbors that you're like, man, I just hope he doesn't knock on my door, they're a nuisance. They're nosy, a busybody, those who have treated God as a welcome addition, just not necessary for life. It is a day of terror for those of us who disregard the reality of who God is, but it's a day of triumph for those of us who have kept faith, who have believed that God's not a liar, who have seeing the beauty of Jesus and the example that he set in washing feet, and serving, but saw that it wasn't just an example, but it was the embodiment of his deity to go and be a sacrificial lamb so that others could live. For those of us who've trusted in that, the gospel, there's not a day of terror. It's a terrific day. And so, Isaiah prophetically is saying, yo, there's gonna be a day where the people of God, a people from all people, standing in the midst of a renewed world where pain, suffering, sorrow, and even death is like a memory, fragments of a faded world, that standing in the midst, they will experience everlasting peace and exclaim everlasting praise. But the way that the scriptures look to time is very fascinating, that though the den and there is certain, the scriptures never leave the den and there over there. That whenever the scriptures identify the then and there, it's to say that this eternity that's coming should invade the everyday. So even as these six verses build out peace, we have to see from the beginning that this eternal perspective that Isaiah is bringing out should invade the here and now, creating this everyday and ultimately everlasting peace. An eternal perspective is the starting point for every day and everlasting peace. There's more weight here. It keeps going. No, notice notice ver- the, the, the part of verse 1 that says this. We have a strong city. And he sets up salvation as walls and, and bulwarks. So, man, when it talks about this idea of a strong city, again, it's building out this level of security that is associated with having the presence of peace that there's a chill, there's a holy vibe where you're calm because you're secure. Now, what's interesting is, you're able to determine the strength of a thing, not just by how it's built, but how it responds to things that may test it. Example, yo, in high school, I got my first pair of Air Force Ones. Like, it was, it was glorious, the ice whites. And and so it was right around the time where Nelly had that song, Give Me to Per. Like, and, and so I was, you know, I was consumed with joy. And one of my close friends, he got me these um, boxes, this Air Force One's. And so when he showed it to me, yo, know, I was in this weird anime-heavy space where I would do like random stuff. So I would like jump off walls. Like it was a it was a thing. I was I was like a freshman, it was weird. So anywho, so he, he <laughs> So he, he showed it to me and he's like, yo, I got this for you. And I took it and I literally, I ran to the wall in my house and I kicked it and I went through it. Now, I thought I was going to bounce off of it and do like this cool turn flip move. Didn't happen. Went straight through this wall. Now, I say it was the wall of my house. I didn't pay the mortgage there. It was my aunt's house. Could I tell you top five beatings I've ever received in my life? When she got home, yo, first of all, I had earrings on, and I wasn't supposed to have earrings, but I thought I was one of those light-skinned dudes. It is what it is. And, yo, she got home. You got earrings in the air? never. Uh-uh. And there's a hole in my wall. Top five beatings. But I noticed something. I thought that that wall was strong, and it was strong enough to, like, allow me to bounce off of it and do my ninja anime move. Completely wrong. And so, again, there's 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 some type of strength that's only revealed when it's tested. And so here it's saying that we have a strong city, which means that it's it's stood the test of time. What that means as it relates to peace is, peace is at its best when life is at its worst. At least the peace God offers. Keep going. We have a strong city, that's what it says. Furthermore, you, you drop down to verse two, it says, open the gates that the righteous nation, righteous nation, plural, nation, people that keeps faith may enter. This peace, it's deeply personal, but it's not just private. The one that's being built out, it's shared. So peace is at its best when, when life is at its worst, but peace is also at its best when it's corporate, not private. When it's experienced by the whole, not just a few. That's why you get passages like Jeremiah where it says, like, I'm sending you to this city that that is filled with brokenness, that there is no remembrance of me there, but you seek its shalom. You seek its peace. You seek its well-being. You don't just hoard it. You distribute it. I like that. It, it becomes the building, building blocks of a, of a more robust picture of the nature of peace. So, so verse three, this is like where, I mean, it's literally on every Christian bumper sticker, but maybe we can unpack it a little bit. And, and so verse three reads this, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So um, I don't know what happened to me, but somewhere along, I think it's because I planted a church. Let me, just, let me just go ahead and say that. I, <laughs> but I became a coffee drinker. And I started to realize that most people don't like coffee. They like what they do to coffee. So I was at one of my coffee shops <laughs> earlier today, and this dude came in, y'all. like, I mean, this like this large Caucasian man hitting on the barista. And he was like, yo, can I get a coffee? And she was like, yeah, how do you want it? He's like, I want it strong and black, like I like my woman. Now, when he said that, I didn't know what to do. I just looked, I was like, and I, you know, I go to this coffee shop all the time, so I know the barista. And I was like, yo, like he was real forward and it was real, she's black clearly. And, and at first I was like, man, right on. Like, you know what I'm saying? Me too. Like, like, I, you know. But then it was like, man, I am glad that you understand what real coffee is. That real coffee doesn't contain sugar. And that is called sugar shaming. Yes. All right. Real coffee doesn't contain milk. In fact, in our city, you know, cafe con leche is really milk with coffee in it. Ain't coffee. Um, real coffee is black. It's, it's pure. It's, it's true. When you look at verse three, it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Notice that. It is building out this beautiful peace that's perfect, that's true, that's not synthetic. It's real peace. But notice what it's not. It is not you keep him in perfect peace who cancels people who disturb their life. You see that? It's not perfect peace primarily through removal, which is usually how we think of peace, especially in our cultural moment. It's like, yo, I have to protect my peace. So what, I, what that means is I need to exercise toxic people out of my life because they must be possessed. So I need to exercise them. Cancel culture. Get away from me. It's peace through removal. So even if it's not people, it's circumstances. I need to remove this weight of debt on me. Navient keeps calling me. Student loans are real though. (laughs) Let me say that. Keeps calling, but if I remove this debt off my shoulders, then I can have peace. It's not what it says. It's not peace primarily through removal, it's peace primarily through resolve. Stayed on you, that's resolved. It's fixation, it's firm, it's continuing. Resolve the nature of this peace keeps going though like so notice it's not peace that's tied to personal strength because verse three it doesn't say who stayed on you but period no stayed on you because he trusts in you peace that's tied to a person god everlasting rock Rock of ages, consistent. I like it. That's the nature of peace. This profound calm that's not primarily through the removal of things, but the resolve to trust. Its pursuit is tied to its nature Notice how it continues. Verse 4, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. That's, that's interesting. So the so, um, best way I can explain it is like this. I have an older daughter, my oldest daughter, she's nine, get her to be 10. I love her to death. Uh, this week, uh, she had an ear infection, so we went to uh, the doctor. It was very interesting. That's really when I knew, like, I was like, okay, this is a different space in Miami. They were asking us several questions. I was like, no, we've never been out of town. I haven't traveled to Japan. I haven't traveled to Italy. I haven't traveled to Iran. I know I'm, not, I'm good. No, I haven't gone. Don't look at the beard. Look at my eyes. I haven't done that, right? And like. But anyway, so after the PCP was like, yeah, you just really just need some amoxicillin, I was driving her back to school because she missed the first part of school. And I was like, man, you gotta, you gotta get to school. All you need is amoxicillin? You good? You're not good? Let's go. We get there, I'm on the phone meeting, and like I'm, ta- I'm, talking, to <laughs> I'm talking to my dude and he can hear my daughter in the background. He's like, what's going on? I was like, well, she was playing hooky. And, and she's like, what's hooky? I was like, well, hooky is when you pretend to be sick so you don't have to go to school. And she's like, oh, yeah, I was definitely doing that. I was like, this joker. Like, she didn't really know that that really was going to get her into more trouble later. She was just being transparent. So, anywho, like, I started talking to her. I was like, well, Serenity, tell me, tell me what was going through your mind. She was like, I really just like being around you. I was like, well, I like being around you, too, but you're not going to weasel your way out of this punishment later, like, or discipline, because, you know, we're Christian. You're not going to weasel your way out of this. She's like, but I really just like being around you. And she keeps building this out. And then she says, in fact, Dad, like, I've noticed that when you're home, like, I sleep better. I was like, really? She's like, yeah, like, I sleep better. I was like, well, well, why is that? She's like, well, because you always say that if anybody is going to get to us, they got to go through you. And I was like, I have been lifting lately. That is true. I have been saying that more often. But then I'm like, but I also say that they don't just have to go through me. In fact, they have to go through God first. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's true. But I'm able to believe that they have to go through God because you're here. And so I'm, no, she's, she's pretty, I mean, like literally piercing my heart. Yeah. You know? But she was, she was getting at something profound. She had a view of me that was so rich and robust, it affected the way that she lived. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height and the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it to the ground, cast it to dust. It says, yo, you fix your heart on God because of the expansive nature of his power. What's a high city compared to him? That's what that means. He's powerful. But it goes down, you get there and it says in verse 6, the foot that tramples the dust that's been laid low is the foot of the poor the steps of the needy. In other words, what he says is that those who have been disregarded, cast off, the vulnerable, I look at them and I say, there's dignity there and I'm going to affirm it in my actions. We're going to do a switcheroo, call it justice. The word for that is goodness. And so, the picture that's painted in, in these passages, in these, in these six verses, this song, is a picture of profound power and a picture of profound goodness. That's all throughout the Bible. And what it, what it helps us to see is really, the pursuit of peace isn't primarily just by seeking peace. It does not say, yo, keep seeking peace. It says, those who are kept in peace are those whose eyes are fixed on God, whose mind is fixed on God, who trust in him forever. Which means you don't seek peace per se primarily. You seek God. You don't just pursue calm. You pursue an ever increasing expanding picture of God's power and God's goodness because when we are vulnerable and anxiety consumes us what happens in our heart is these questions start to form am I safe am I going to be taken care of And when we answer those questions negatively, no, I I am not safe, no, no one's gonna take care of me, we step into a place where we are ruled by anxiety and we try to control the world around us. But what frees us, what empties us of control, what empties us of being ruled by anxiety is an ever-increasing picture of God's power and goodness. Are you safe? Is God strong? Can he bring low this lofty city? Is God strong? Are you gonna be taken care of? Who set up the salvation? God. It leads me to some considerations that I've really been thinking about like, if, if this is true, that there's this robust experience of peace, even in the midst of tangible, anxious circumstances around me that produce it, like this, this anxious heart inside of me, that it's worth being pursued, this, this promise of peace, then how do I receive it? How do I keep resting in it? What should take place in me? I had a conversation um, with a guy this week that was really transformative. A guy by the name of Peter Warner. We were talking about just life and all even the possibilities of transforming the community that we're in. And as we were talking about just how this pandemic has, I mean, it has caused people to just, and I, and I get it but just because something can be explained doesn't mean it can be excused, right? So it's, it's caused people to just, I mean, look out for self. And those who, of us who, who may be inclined to not be like that, but may be inclined to more, be, be more bearing, bear other people's burdens, we, he was talking about the tension there where it's like you almost bear other people's burdens so much so where you become burdened. And as we were talking, he 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 told me about this phrase that he heard from a guy by the name of John Eldridge about like benevolent detachment, where you could care without carrying the weight of another person. But as we were talking about that, I was like, man, that is that is good, that is true. But really, the only way I can actually care without carrying and then being weighed down, is if I believe that God has something better for them, peace, that is not just possible for me, but it's possible for them. And the way I express that belief is through serving them in prayer. And so I've just been just wrestling. It's like, man, that as I I start to to think about this, this nature of peace and its pursuit and what happens next in terms of receiving it and then living out of it, it's this benevolent detachment, not that you stop caring, but that you lean into prayer so you care, but you don't carry. The only thing you carry is their weight to Jesus in prayer. God be with us. We need you. But, but not only that, it, it, it also leads to, to this passionate service, especially in context with this chapter. Look, verse 7 through through, through 9. It's very interesting. It says, the path of the righteous is level. So right after this song, you get this statement, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In, in the path of your judgments, O oh Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you for when your judgments are in the earth the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness essentially this is a picture that's painted of of a heart that's full of affections and passion that earnestly desires God they've seen him as beautiful they've received the truth of the gospel Jesus in my place because I am one of those people who have treated God as if he's irrelevant, like a nuisance to be disregarded. I was them, but there was a shift because he came for me. And so there's this rich affection that's birthed inside of them, it's passion. I yearn for him, but I don't just yearn for him myself. I yearn for him to be known everywhere his judgments all throughout the earth. But it begs the question, how are his judgments gonna be known? How, are the, how is the way that God wants things to be, wants life to function, wants people to live and, and act and breathe, how is that gonna be known? By the people who know his judgments. So it's not just internal passion where you're just like, I'm delighting in God. It's delight that leads to action where I'm serving that others would know. Now, we're in a perfect time for that if you're a Christian, where everybody is stepping into a space of, well, I, I just got to do me, I just, I just got to take care of me, so I'm going to buy up all the toilet paper in Costco. Why? Everybody's buying up water bottles. Yo, water isn't stopping them. It's not going to stop running. Okay? But there's there's a crew of people all around us who we could serve. We could serve well because we have peace. It's a consideration I've been thinking of. I want to close with this. There's this phrase Um, Latin phrase si vis passim parabellum Not, not John Wick he stole it but it's if you want peace prepare for war and as I've been reflecting because again like when life gives us the opportunity to reflect we should take it this peace as profound as it is You don't just have it. You can't just grab it. You gotta fight for it. But the fight for this peace, which, which, which again is, is being pursued by having an ever-increasing picture of God's power and goodness, the fight for this isn't one where we just with tremendous energy and effort almost will ourselves into some type of belief. The fight for this Peace, the war for actually pursuing, actually receiving, resting in, considering, then applying, is by leaning into the reality that God fights for us. That Isaiah 53, you have this beautiful picture, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That there was this proactive fight for us to receive peace. And I don't have to will myself to fight. I have to lean into the one who fights for us. Because our peace is important to him. Because it's the presence of relationship. Ephesians 3 says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Peace matters to God because it pulls us closer and closer into relationship. And if we want it, oh, we have to prepare for war. We have to fight for it. But it's not by tapping into our will. It's by leaning into grace and the one who fights for us. So in this season, please wash other, like wash your hands, okay? Let's, let's do that. But like Kim McCullough said, she got it from Scott Saul's, don't just wash your hands, but wash other people's feet, serve. And in this season of social distancing, which there is wisdom in that, Elbows and fist bumps are cool, all right? Even the whole kid in play, it's cool. But would the social distancing force us into a place of rest? And would we not equate having to disconnect from people geographically for a moment to disconnecting from them relationally forever? This may be a moment of rest that God is bringing to a lot of us, but it's not rest from him and it's not rest for others. It's rest in him and rest for others because he is our peace. Let's pray. Jesus, would we not be consumed by the chaos around us, (laughs) but would we be utterly wrecked by the possibility of experiencing this peace because our mind has stayed on you. It stayed on you by turning to your word. It stayed on you by actually seeking ways to have the picture of who you are expanded in our lives, namely your power and your goodness. And as it stayed on you, we're able to experience rest. Would we use this moment well for your name's sake? Amen.